Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta, where we are committed to changing lives with faith, hope, and love. We're so glad you are here. Our second scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. Listen again for the word of the Lord. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men, these Jews, are disturbing our city and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had been, been given a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now are they going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Romans. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is week six of our summer series on the book of Acts. Last week, Paul arrived to the city of Philippi. He spent some time with Lydia. And this week, he's still there. 
Philippi is an up-and-coming city in the first century. It's located 300 miles due north of Athens, Greece, right across the Aegean Sea. It's known for its gold mines, its harbor, and its proximity to an ancient Roman trade route, a highway that linked Constantinople to Rome. Philippi is on this trade route, and because of that, it's popular with moneymakers. And in our New Testament reading, we meet some of these moneymakers. The story starts with a girl, a slave, a fortune teller. She has a gift. It's not from God, we read, but from an evil spirit, which is to say something is wrong about her. Something is broken inside of her. She follows Paul and Silas around the city, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. Well, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. But this is a problem because they're in Philippi, which God in Philippi is the most high God. It's not necessarily the one that Paul and Silas worship. At best, this girl is confusing people about who Paul and Silas represent, and at worst, she's associating their mission with Zeus. Paul has finally had enough. He turns around and he commands the evil spirit out of the girl. Now, the scripture doesn't say that he calls out the evil spirit because he feels compassion for her or sorry for her. It says he was annoyed. And I, I like that reminder that God can even work through our irritation sometimes. And with Paul, his irritation commands the spirit out. And when it comes out, out comes the future earnings of her owners. It's a miracle that she's been healed, but those money makers, the people who have been exploiting her, are furious. They bring Paul and Silas before the city leaders, saying, these men are throwing our city into an uproar. This isn't the first time a city was thrown into an uproar. Throughout Acts, uproar seems to follow the Christians. At Pentecost, we remember an uproar when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking in different languages. But before that, there was an uproar too in Jerusalem, an uproar on Palm Sunday. Remember the story of Palm Sunday? Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey, and in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that as Jesus got near the city, the people were shaken, the people were stirred up, they were troubled. Jesus himself causes an uproar. And for that uproar, he is crucified. Now, Paul and Silas aren't crucified, but the accusation that they're causing an uproar is a serious one, and it drives the city leaders to bypass normal Roman law. Instead of receiving a fair hearing, they are seized, beaten, and thrown into prison. Now, we might forgive them if they spent those dark hours behind bars fuming about their treatment or plotting their escape, or even fretting about what will happen the next morning. These might be the feelings and thoughts that go through our minds. And so we're surprised when Paul and Silas, they don't fume, they don't fret. Instead, they sing. For hours, they sing. We read, they were sending up their praise and their prayers to God. And as they sing, they remember who they are and whose they are. And it gives them strength to endure. There in the darkness, we read, the earth suddenly moves. 
I think it's because our God knows how to cause an uproar of his own. When the earthquake hits, the prison doors spring open. The jailer rushes inside, frantic that everyone has escaped. And into this uproar, the jailer draws his sword and turns it against himself. His world has been turned upside down, and all he can do is despair. He drives his sword because he doesn't yet know how to sing. What do we do when our world is turned upside down? How do we react when we're pushed into a corner, when we have no good options and we can see no way out? It is tempting to despair. It's tempting to despair when the world, as we know it, feels like it's crumbling down, when the ground that we thought was so secure begins to shake. It's tempting to despair. And so the question is, how then do we find our way, as Paul and Silas did, how do we find our way to sing? In 2013 and 2012, the Middle East erupted in what's been called the Arab Spring, a rash of protests and rallies cropping up from Casablanca to Cairo with people demanding greater liberties from their governments. Those people were causing an uproar. And it was scary, especially if you lived there. One of my coworkers lived in Cairo. He sent his wife and children out of the city because the situation was so chaotic and dangerous. It was hard to make sense of the uproar, even from 6,000 miles away. And the news wasn't good, it wasn't helping. Every piece of news you could read or listen to was negative about what this might mean, not just for the North Africa and Middle East, but what it might mean for the world. And it was around this time I stumbled onto an article by Fareed Zakaria, who was writing for Time Magazine. It was the first article that I saw that had any glimmer of hope. In fact, he laid out what he called the case for hope. And this is what he said. He said that what we were witnessing wasn't a new struggle, it was an old struggle. Finally in the open, a wound that had festered in the dark was now in the light of the day, and that was a good thing. That was a step toward healing. Watch closely, he said. Perhaps we will see the Arab world do a new thing. Things didn't change as much as he might have hoped they would, but that idea stuck in my head. Out of uproar, sometimes what we're seeing is a new thing, the birth of a new thing, because change is hard and change is costly. And sometimes good, necessary change requires an uproar. One person who's well acquainted with uproar is our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Last week, our family went to Washington, D.C., and my kids fell in love with the story of Lincoln, and in particular, the Lincoln Memorial. And they're not alone in this. The Lincoln Memorial receives over six million visitors every year. It's the most visited monument on the National Mall. In fact, Lincoln's legacy has far outgrown the man himself. In his own time, he was roundly criticized. Slave owners didn't trust him. Abolitionists didn't trust him either. He was too moderate. He was too willing to compromise to keep the country together. But his legacy has taken on a life of its own. 
Not long after his death, suffragists pointed to Lincoln's own words to make their argument that women should have the right to vote. The civil rights movement found a touchstone in Lincoln. A hundred years after the president's assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and delivered his I Have a Dream speech. The same day we visited the memorial, my son reached down to the ground and picked up a penny, and he held it up saying, look, Mom, that's where we were. And I'm embarrassed that I made it to adulthood not realizing that Abraham Lincoln is on the penny, his face is, and on the other side is the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> and it seems ironic that a man who caused such a seismic shift in the trajectory of our country should find himself on the humble, lowly penny. It's the smallest piece of change. Maybe it's also fitting, though, that he's on the humble penny. If my seven-year-old can get his hands on a penny, anyone can. It's a reminder that causing good trouble isn't limited to the well-connected or the wealthy. Anyone that can get their hand on a penny can be an agent of change. As we look back at the legacy of Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr., as we look back at the uproar that swirled around them, we can see it. We can see it. We can see that in the midst of the upheaval, our Lord was doing a new thing. When God shows up, his presence often causes an uproar. The Holy Spirit caused an uproar at Pentecost. Jesus caused an uproar as he rode into Jerusalem. And throughout scripture, we see glimpses of this uproar. The prophet Amos doesn't mince words. He says that when God draws near, the earth melts. Moses tells us that when God drew near to Mount Sinai, he and all the Israelites felt the earth shaking. And when Jesus breathes his last breath from the cross, the Gospels tells us that the move, the earth, moves again. And I think the ancients were onto something when they recognized that when God shows up, it's powerful, it changes us, it shakes our world. And just as God shows up in our personal lives, God also shows up in our communal life. And there too, God's presence is unsettling. Our Old Testament reading is from Leviticus chapter 25. This is uh, known as a Jubilee chapter. It's part of a longer instruction on how the community of Israel is to live as people set apart. And not just set apart, but as people enacting God's kingdom within their community. Jubilee is celebrated on the 10th day of the seventh month. And our beetle, Marty Moore, pointed out this morning that today is the 10th day of the seventh month. And I regret that I had not planned it that way. <laughs> but as Marty says, today, just as any day, today can be Jubilee. So Leviticus chapter 25 introduces this word Jubilee. And it sounds like a party. It sounds like a big, fun party. Sometimes Jubilee is. This summer, the Queen of England celebrated her Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne. 
In 2012, she had a diamond jubilee for 60 years. In 2002, she celebrated her regular jubilee, which is 50 years. And so for the Israelites, the regular jubilee is what we're talking about. Jubilee is celebrated every 50 years. 50 is the length of a generation. So every 50 years, an entire year is set aside for rest and enjoyment. People lay down their plows, the fields lie fallow, the animals get a break. It's like a continuous summer vacation. But here's the kicker. Jubilee isn't just about rest, it's also about reset. Every 50 years, slaves are set free. Every 50 years, property is reapportioned. If you lost property, you get it back. The playing field is leveled. It's a big deal. Because of Jubilee, the bad decisions of the father do not have to be carried by the son or the grandson, or the great-grandson. Because of Jubilee, power does not concentrate in the hands of the few or of a single king. Economic influence, social status, all is reset for the next generation. The Queen's Jubilee celebration cost approximately 34 million U.S. dollars. That's a lot of money. But this kind of jubilee is costly too. It's extremely costly. It's so costly, scholars debate if any community ever successfully lived this way. Because to practice jubilee is to cause an uproar. It's to upend the systems, our social systems, our economic systems as we know them. And yet we can't throw it away can't throw it away. Jubilee is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Seven years times seven, 49 years. The 50th is the Jubilee. The Jubilee is the culmination of what it means to live as people of God and what it means to live under God's justice and within God's kingdom. Jesus connected his ministry to Jubilee. When he begins his ministry in Luke chapter four, he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is Jubilee. Right there in Jesus' hometown, he reveals God's kingdom is at hand. This is what it looks like. God's kingdom is at hand. And you know what happens next? It wasn't exactly a party. They chased him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff because that man was causing an uproar. But too often, Christians avoid uproar. Presbyterians have a way of justifying this. We say everything should be done decently and in order. You've heard it. We took that line from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's in the same chapter where Paul encourages women not to speak at church. <laughs> Maybe we lean a little too hard into that advice. What's happening in the church of Corinth is that the church is having a problem with really long worship services. They're trying to get out before lunch. And Paul is trying to help them streamline things. So, yes, maybe we take decent in order a little too seriously. It's not the only thing the Bible says about how we should express our faith. In fact, Scripture encourages us to be bold in our faith. 
It tells us we're given a spirit of power and it promises that faith the size of a tiny mustard seed will move mountains. And I can tell you this, mountains do not move decently or in order. And our God is in the business of moving mountains. So, if you feel stuck, pushed into a corner, trapped with no good options, no way out, don't despair. Watch closely. Because just as God did with Paul and Silas, perhaps you will see the Lord do a new thing. And if the life that you've built is crumbling down, if everything you thought you could depend on is melting away, if it feels like the ground beneath you is sinking, take heart. Watch the uproar, because in the midst of it, you may see the Lord do a new thing. This is our case for hope. In his letter to the church at Philippi, also known as the Book of Philippians, Paul wrote about the hope he had. I like to imagine that these words came from his experience in that prison that one night. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. I promised you that we would commit to an act of justice today. And we are going to do that this week. Some of you have heard of the table on Delk. It's a nonprofit not too far down the road from here who serve a population that are currently or at risk of being sexually exploited. Every Wednesday and Saturday, guests are provided a meal and a place to rest, and every guest is treated with dignity as a child of God. It's their mission to see lives transformed. This morning, our congregation is invited to create placemats for folks in situations that may find it hard to rejoice. I showed it to the children, and I'll show it to you. It's a big, white, blank sheet of paper. There's a stack of them in the gathering space, and you can take one or take several, mark them up with words of encouragement. These placemats will be a visual reminder of God's love, just a small way that we can share the hope we have with people who may need that encouragement. Take a placemat before you leave, bring it back to the church in the next couple weeks, and we'll deliver them for an upcoming meal. Let us close in prayer. Almighty God, give us courage to live into the promise of Jubilee. Remind us that we are people of the Jubilee. We are freed and forgiven and we are called to extend that freedom and forgiveness to others. Remind us that when the world feels like it's crashing down, you are at work, even in the uproar, in a powerful way. Show us how we can continue to trust you. And if we can trust nothing else, let us hold tight to our faith in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
This podcast is a ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. Come join us Sundays at 189 Church Street, Marietta, Georgia, or visit us online at fpcmarietta.org.